The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Sometimes that transfer doesn't happen from one generation to the next. 
And uh, I think of a recent story I heard. Um, many of you might know the name John Piper, someone that's, that's fairly famous in the evangelical world, written lots of books and, and spoken at lots of conferences and had a church for a number of years up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And he's had, has, I don't know how many kids are in his family, but he, he's got several kids, and some of them write and speak, and they're, they're following Christ. Um, he has another son named Abraham, um, who is not following Christ. In fact, Abraham is on social media and, and on the internet, all over the, all over YouTube, um, really deconstructing and trying to help other people deconstruct their faith. And when I look at that, 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 that story, that, that, that family, of course, no one knows, we don't know what took place in his own mind and heart to bring him to that place. But it's just interesting when you see someone who can be like of, of a certain stature in the Christian world, and yet their kids still struggle, just like ours do, when it comes to transferring the faith from one generation to the next. And this happened on a broad scale in Israel. You're going to see a simple pattern from one generation to the next. And we see this all through Judges, and we see it today. And it looks like this. Commitment in one generation might lead to complacency in the next, and then full-on compromise in the, the next generation. So one generation might be committed and, and true believers, and the next just becomes complacent and apathetic and might claim faith, but they're just going to the motions. But the next generation may just outright reject the faith altogether and compromise with the world around them spiritually. Now sometimes, we see it today, don't we, that sometimes the generations like to blame each other. So the older generation blames the younger, the younger blames the older, the older. The younger will say to the older, well, you know, they never reached out to us. They didn't really care about us. Or they, I didn't like how they lived out their faith in front of us, and so I, I reject the whole thing. Or the older generation might look at the younger generation and say, well, you know, they don't listen to anybody. They think they know everything. And so there's, but if we're honest, though, I, I would say we probably all play some responsibility in that. Probably usually a bit of both as far as where blame can be, um, can be placed. And I've seen this play out in many families. The pattern you see here, sometimes the parents are committed, but the kids are just complacent about their faith. They've never known life apart from Jesus in the church, and they can just take it all for granted. And sometimes I've seen complacent parents, and that can lead to compromise in their kids. You know, you know why should I take this seriously if my parents don't take it seriously? So you're going to see this, this pattern play out, I think, in our first couple of chapters. So Judges 1, 1 to 3, we'll start there. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me. And we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Now, of course, these brothers have been dead for years. These are the tribes that are conversing here. And um, before we get to the specific sin committed here, I want to discuss one of the most difficult issues in the Old Testament. You know, many people struggle with the idea that God would command Israel to take out other nations. And why would God do that? Well, the question you first have to wrestle with is, do 
do you believe that God has a right to judge evil? If you read about the Canaanites and their history, they were committing horrific evil. They're making child sacrifices. Their religion was very sexualized. They had the priestesses of Baal. They had these temple prostitutes where things would take place in the temples. And they would combine worship with pleasure. You can see how this would not be a hard sell to the Israelites. The Israelites, maybe their temple experience isn't what the Canaanites would experience. So you can see how they would be they'd be drawn to this kind of thing. So, so why would why would God why would God ask the Israelites to take out these Canaanites? So again, the, the question you have to come back to the question: Do you believe that God has a right? to judge evil. Because this went on for hundreds of years. You know, and people ask, people ask, how can a good God command Israel to destroy Canaan? But people also ask another question. They ask this question, how can a good God allow so much evil? Why doesn't God just destroy evil? Why doesn't God just handle evil in the here and now? But then when he does, they question that as well. So God knew that if Israel didn't take them out, that Israel would fall prey to idolatry, and they eventually did. What we see here is that God knows our hearts better than we do. He knows the hearts of the Israelites better than they know their own hearts. He knows what they're going to fall into in this idolatry. But here's what's also interesting, is that God would also use other nations to bring judgment against Israel, when they would fall prey to idolatry. So God is equal opportunity. So what is the sin here that's taking place in the first three verses? Well, well what did God tell the tribe of Judah to do? Well, he tells them, I want you, Judah, to go up against the Canaanites. But then what do they do? Well, they ask the tribe of Simeon to join in. They say, hey, if you help us out, we're going to help you guys out. And they do this because they're they're afraid and they lack faith. It even says here, it says, God says, I have given it into your hand. All you've got to do is take it. And so here's the sin of Judah. It's disobedience in the small things. What seems like just small disobedience can carry big consequences. We see that here. We see that in our own lives. The tribe of Judah, they lived in fear instead of faith. They didn't fully trust God to bring about the victory. And so they take matters into their own hands. And even though Judah doesn't fully obey God, God in his grace still gives Judah the victory. And so up until verse 18, Judges 1 sounds positive, but then we get to verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah... Again, we see his grace at work in this in the story. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, why would chariots of iron keep them from being able to drive out the inhabitants of the plain? You can think about just geography, how the people of the plain might have chariots. Chariots move pretty fast on open, flat ground. So the people of the plain are the ones that had the chariots of iron. And it says, they took possession of the hill country, but they couldn't take possession of, of the plain. 
because of these chariots of iron. And these are the tanks of the ancient world. They could just mow down uh, another military if they just um, had, uh, had foot soldiers. Now, did God know that they had chariots of iron when he told them to conquer these people? Yes, he knew that. Can you think of another people group that had chariots of iron that went up against the Israelites? Egypt? And we know what God did to the Egyptians. So Judah looks at the people of the plain, and they conclude they're too much for us. They're, they're making what we might call a common-sense decision. And you see, for Israel, living faithful, obedient lives goes against common sense. The same goes for us, that living a faithful, obedient life will always defy common sense. Israel looks at the circumstances and says, you know, we're kind of weighing this out, and this does not seem in our favor. And so we're going to go with another plan. We can't take these people out because of, of who they are and what they have. So living a faithful, obedient life will always defy common sense. As a believer and a follower of Christ, you will have to make decisions that other people look at you and say, this, this doesn't make any sense. You know that no one's doing that anymore, right? You know that nobody lives that way anymore. That's old-fashioned. So living a obedient life, following Christ, will always defy common sense to those around you, sometimes even in the church, even other believers, so-called believers. You see, discipleship always means taking risks. Where we live today, following Jesus is seen as this tame and safe thing. I'm not sure how we got there. Whenever we grow up in the church, this is how we start to view. We see again, following Christ is like the most safe and the most tame thing I could possibly do. But in most times and most places, following Jesus is dangerous. Following Jesus means your life could be in, in danger. And so where are we too scared to take risks? Where are we too scared to take risks? Where are we so tempted just to live sort of the common sense life, so to speak? And if things don't make sense to us, we just say, well, we're just going to cave into whatever the culture is saying. And so following Christ will always defy common sense. Now, after Judges 1, 19, we're going to see a trend in the rest of the chapter. You're going to see things like what the, the, the people of Benjamin did not drive out, and the people of Manasseh did not drive out. And then we get to verse 28, where it says, When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So once again, instead of obeying God, they're making another common sense decision. Israel decides, we're going to enslave these people because we, we can't drive out. We're going to enslave these people. So they prioritize convenience over obedience. You know, it just, it just makes more sense economically. Listen, sin is always more convenient than obedience. I really can't think of a scenario where where sin is the harder option, or, or sin seems um, like it's uh, it's more convenient than than obeying God. So all of chapter one shows how Israel has some success, but then they still allow this commingling with 
with idol worship and idolaters. And, and for now, these idols lie dormant, but they're kind of planted in the ground, kind of like landmines. They're going to explode later on in the book in later chapters. So then in Judges chapter 2, we see God send an angel to confront the Israelites. And it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So God sends his angel to confront the Israelites. And even in this confrontation, look at the angel reminding them of God's grace. God's reminding them of their story and how God made a covenant with them many years prior. Now think back to the statement in, in chapter 1, verse 19, where it said, they could not drive them out because they had chariots. But this angel says, you would not. Another example of moving from commitment to complacency is saying I can't when it's really I won't. A great question to ask ourselves, where are we saying I can't, but God is saying you won't. You just refuse. God will never put us in a position where we cannot obey Him. There are many areas of life I can think of that relate to this, where we think we're unable, but it's really a refusal against God. I think of a few areas. I think about relationships where if someone's in an unhealthy, ungodly dating relationship, and they're just saying, I can't end it. Now, the issue is that you won't. Or forgiveness. I, I can't forgive that person. No, the issue is that you refuse to forgive that person. Or telling the truth. I, you know, I can't tell the truth in, the, in this circumstance because it, it's going to be too costly. Now, the issue is you won't tell the truth. Or sexual temptation. I, I can't live in a way that God's Word or God wants me to live in that area of my life. Now, the issue is that you won't and you refuse to. So, so where does God want to change us but we think that change is impossible? So God uses this angel to remind them about Egypt, and, and he's saying that, listen, I'm the God who rescued you. I'm the God who set, set you free from Egypt and the bondage there in Egypt. So the root of disobedience is failing to remember who God is. So this angel shows up and reminds them of who God is and who they are in light of that covenant. So now after this confrontation is, is over, the following verses in later on in the chapter say that the people, they respond by, by weeping and wailing. And they show all this outward sorrow. And they start sacrificing. They start getting spiritual. But the issue is it's all up front. If you read on in the book, you'll see over and over again how they would go through this cycle of they get confronted by someone, a judge or even an angel sometimes, and, and they would repent outwardly, but then fall back into the same patterns over and over and over. And here's the reality. They had a facade, they had a facade of spiritual activity, but that was preventing them, I think, from truly dealing with what's really happening inside their heart. You know, when we confront, we often do the same kind of thing where I think when I confront my kids or something, there might be some sorrow and some tears possibly, 
But sometimes it's just worldly sorrow. It's not godly sorrow. It, it, it might be steeped in just shame and guilt, but not really steeped in repentance. And so for Israel, this is worldly sorrow. It is just an outward show. And it's a spiritual facade that they're displaying before God. In Joshua and Judges, we're going to see several generations digress from commitment to complacency and then from complacency to compromise. And so pick up again in Judges 2, verse 7. And the people serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So this now flashes back to a previous generation uh, to contrast the previous generation with the current generation. And you see, the earlier generations, they knew the past. I mean, think of all they had seen in their past. The, the, the parting of the Red Sea. First, the ten plagues in Egypt. Then the they cross over Sinai, they come to the Red Sea, and they see the Red Sea part and open up so they can pass through. Then they see a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night over the tabernacle. And it's, it's God's manifest presence with the people out there in the wilderness. And they see God rain manna down from heaven and, and doves fall out of the sky. God provides food for them right there in the wilderness. God gives them water in the middle of a desert. This generation had seen so many amazing works of God, and of course they had struggles at times, that generation, but they followed God mostly because their past fueled their present. But then something happens in verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So that generation, they, they die off. And now a new generation comes into the fray. And so one generation, they know the Lord. The next generation doesn't. Now the word new here does not mean they didn't know about the exodus from Egypt or the Red Sea parting or the destruction of Jericho. The younger generation, they knew the historical facts. But knowing some facts isn't enough to transform someone. When thinking of the past, one generation cried, and the next generation yawned. One generation understood and knew their position before God. But the following generation, they would just kind of yawn. They might roll their eyes if they did that kind of thing back then. As parents would begin telling them the stories, they might think, okay, this story again. We already know all this. We've already heard all of these things. So this generation, they forgot. The, the younger generation, they forgot that they used to be slaves. And I think that we do that as well. We forget that we used to be slaves to sin, and we forget the gospel. Does your faith ever seem boring to you? I ask my students this question sometimes. When you're, if your faith seems boring to you, I want you to think about this idea. I used to be a slave. I used to be a slave to sin. Even if you were saved at a young age, know that you were a slave to sin. And know that if you didn't know Christ today, that your life would be in bondage even still. So if you're struggling with some passion, struggling with some joy, 
know this truth that, that we all used to be slaves to sin. And that's the thing right here that the Israelites forgot. They forgot their history. They forgot that they used to be enslaved in Egypt. So don't ever forget what God has freed you from. And then we look at verse 11 and 12 where it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the, in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. So now they have moved from complacency to just outright spiritual compromise. And they have abandoned God. They have, they have mixed in worship. And it's not that they have intellectually or even emotionally just left God by the wayside. They're just mixing it all together now. Because they've been so influenced by those around them. J.D. Greer says it like this. Spiritual amnesia leads to spiritual apostasy. So all of this occurs in, in a short span of a couple generations. And the transfer of faith did not happen. And again, sometimes generations like to blame the other. You know, we see that thing today. We blame whatever generation that we're not in, right? And, uh, and so we've seen the book of Judges kind of unpacks and shows us the problem. And we see that cycle happen in our generations and, and in our families, but also back to the nation of Israel. So what was Israel to do? And what are we to do? Well, Israel had forgotten something. This is called the great Shema, and it comes from the Hebrew word, which is to hear. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, it says this. It says, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Notice what God says first. He says, you must first love me wholeheartedly. So this comes before teaching. With our kids, we often think of, you know, passing down the faith just means, I just teach them lots of good stuff. Well, that's partly true. But it starts with you and me loving God wholeheartedly. And that, that's before teaching. Because if, if we only attempt to teach and there's no love for God, well, that becomes hypocrisy. And, and the younger generation, at least my kids, are really good at sniffing out hypocrisy. They're, they're, they're like little hypocrisy detectors. They can see it in families, right? And they especially see it when it comes to spiritual things. Now, in working with students, I generally see three different types of parents. And this is going to sound simplistic. I'm going to try to... There's a continuum here, of course. But I generally see, like, three categories when it comes to parents. The first would be, like, hypocritical believers. Then you have unbelievers. Then you have strong believers. And there are some cautions, I think, for each kind of family. The hypocritical uh, believer types, they're the kind that just... They might, they might play at the church game, but there, maybe there's no genuine faith, and it tends to show at home. I often tell my students, if that's your home life, 
and you're seeing hypocrisy in the family, don't let that hypocrisy keep you from following Jesus because he hates hypocrisy too. Jesus agrees with you. You already agree with Jesus. So you can start there. Well, the next kind of family, it might be with his unbelieving parents. And the kids are finding ways to be part of the body of Christ. And listen, I have seen some students come to faith against all odds. And it's just a testimony to the grace and mercy of Jesus. And maybe the parents want nothing to do with it, but, but God in his grace just has a way of just snatching them up. And they surrender to Christ, they plug in the community, start growing. Listen, don't ever underestimate what God can do. I think of, there's a guy that's going to come and speak to us. We're going to leave to go to Impact Camp uh, June 5th through the 10th. We're going to go down there and train uh, about 120 high school junior high students on how to lead Impact Bible Clubs here in Bell County when they get back the next week. And at our training camp, we're bringing in a guy named Bobby Pruitt. You don't know who he is. But he is a, a pastor, has been a youth pastor for a number of years in the Austin area. Now he's a, the lead pastor at Hutto Bible Church down in Hutto. And he spoke at our men's conference here at TBC a number of years ago. And I asked Bobby to come speak to our students because Bobby is the one who is instrumental in helping to start the impact idea at a church in Austin that trickled north towards us. And we began doing it about two decades ago. And so he's kind of like an, the pioneer of this whole thing that we do each year at a different church. And so we'll encourage and, and share with our students that we can impact him. But Bobby's got a pretty powerful testimony because he's the youngest of 13 children. And he was raised in an alcoholic and abusive home environment. And he's the youngest of 13 children. And I think this is still true that every other person in that family is still an alcoholic. And somehow, the youngest one, Bobby, God just plucked him up, snatched him out, and, and set him on a course for ministry for his life. Became a youth pastor, became a pastor in another church in the area, in Austin. And, uh, and so it's a powerful testimony of someone who um, has been set free from a lot. He, he tells a story of how before school, his dad would come into the room and he'd wake him up by just pouring beer on his head. That's the kind of home he grew up in. But God snatched him up and he gave his life to Christ and gave his life to, to serve in the church and the body of Christ. You know, some young people, they might have difficult parents or even absentee parents or maybe they're tempted to reject the faith because of all of that. You know, how can God let this happen? You know, why can't God give me a better home life? But you know why? You know why the home is like that? Because somewhere along the way, somebody rejected Jesus. So the challenge to you would be, don't, don't make the same mistake. Don't let their sin be your sin. Then we come to the family where we might say they're strong believers. And listen, I know none of us are perfect. I'm not, not trying to say that this morning. No one is perfect. But maybe there's some strong believer parents. And I would challenge those students and those families, you're, you're in danger of just taking it all for granted. There are friends that you have that their parents aren't believers. And they're looking at your family and they're saying, 
if, if that was my family. They're desiring what you have. So listen, don't take that for granted and allow that to, to make you become complacent and apathetic in your own faith. And so here's a challenge for the parents. We see a challenge in verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 where he talks about God uh, tells the Israelites that you should um, teach them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. This does not mean, parents, that you turn everything into a lecture. That's not what this means. But it does mean this refers to like routine, concrete, daily life. And this is to, to find moments in the day, moments in life, where you just you press truth down into their life. A great example of this might be uh, to start by sharing your faith story with your kids. I was convicted by this a number of months ago. I realized I had never shared my, my full testimony to my son or my daughter yet. And so my son, we were going to drive to Dallas for the sporting event. And I thought, I can start on the way home. He really can't go anywhere. And so on the way home, well, I'll share this, this story, my testimony. And uh, so that was the plan. And as I shared that story, it literally took the full trip back from Dallas to Temple. Mainly because I had to recap all of my immaturity with him. And walk him through, here's how I fell into sin, here's the things that I, I fell into, and, and the ways in which I fell into sin. And I found the whole thing very humbling because I had to tell him all my junk, first of all. But secondly, I kind of look at him and I go, you know, he's actually more mature than I was at his age. And I can see that in him. And it's a challenge to be patient with my own kids because I look at my own life like, man, I was messing up a lot more than he was at his age. So whenever we, we share these things with our kids, we don't just want to teach information to them. But we want to make it personal. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you're going to see a concept where the concept is basically we were slaves, but the Lord brought us out. So how are we telling that to our kids? I was a slave, but the Lord brought me out. The Lord set me free. At times we think of, of passing on the faith as just handing down some doctrine or teaching them how to defend the faith, like apologetics. But there's got to be this kind of openness and some transparency in sharing our own, our own inner spiritual life with them. I think back uh, many years ago now when my kids first started school. You know, whenever your kids first enter school, you, you, you would kind of give them a heads up. You're like, hey, listen, you might hear some, some words at school that you may not hear in our house, and just so you know. And, and you don't want to like, tell them what the words are, right? So you just kind of leave it open-ended. And, uh, and they come home, and, and I remember the first time one of my kids came home and said, hey, I heard, I heard a bad word at school today. I'm like, oh, it's happened. It's finally it's happened. What is it? I said, he goes, this kid said the S word. I'm like, oh, no, the S word. What did he say? He called somebody stupid. And I'm like, okay, good. I mean, it's not good that he did that. But anyway, too much to explain. And, uh, and so we're having this conversation about, like, struggling with language. And I... But instead of just saying, hey, don't do this and do this, the conversation should be, hey, let me tell you how I struggled in junior high with my language. You know why I did that? And I struggled immensely because I wanted to fit in. 
and I want it to be light. And so you kind of pull back the curtain a bit and you say, hey, look, let's have a conversation, not just about what you should do, what you shouldn't do, but as you're sharing your story, tell them how you struggled. You pull the curtain back a little bit and say, this is what, this was my sin behind the sin that I was struggling and dealing with. And you're going to have the exact same kind of temptation wherever you go to school. So how are you sharing with your, your kids? I was a slave, but the Lord brought me out. The Lord set me free. Sean McDowell, an apologetics professor at Biola University, he recently said this statement, this idea, and a talk I heard him give, he said, even though apologetics is important, there's often this relational and emotional pain at the heart of why kids reject the faith. And he referred to a, a massive study about passing on the faith between generations where it was revealed that the primary factor in passing the faith from one generation to the next was a warm relationship with the parents. And again, not to bring shame or any guilt on anyone here today, but we have to prioritize the relationship over simply trying to argue them back towards the faith. And again, none of this is meant to be some surefire formula. I have seen unbelieving parents have kids with strong faith, and strong believing parents have kids that just reject all of it. But as we begin to lay the gospel before our kids, we shouldn't turn the sharing of that gospel into a work through which we try to justify ourselves. I mean, that defies the gospel itself. It defies the core of the gospel is grace and mercy given to us. We will always live in some kind of tension, but the place where that tension gets resolved is the cross. I love how Keller puts it. He says, without the gospel of Christ crucified, we will always either complacently give in to sin or live under a burden of guilt and fear. The cross is where we find the tension resolved so we are able to live forgiven, obedient lives despite also living sinful, disobedient lives. The cross is the place where we find the freedom to accept ourselves without being proud and to challenge ourselves without being crushed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you have given to us and bestowed upon us that we can even come into a relationship with you. God, would you give us wisdom as we seek to find a way? As we know that there's no surefire formula. We know we can't just do points A, B, and C and, and turn out certain results. But God, we pray that you help us to be faithful in the things you've asked us and called us to do to be. Help us to be faithful in prayer. For our families, help us to be people who ashamed, not just of the gospel as an idea, but how the gospel has impacted us personally in our lives. God, help us to find ways, appropriate ways, to share those things with our kids so they can see in and see how we have transformed us from within. God, help us to be people um, that care deeply for the generations to come. God, I also pray for the younger generation as they come up that 